Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today, I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because we have a very special guest that I've been lucky enough to score an interview with, Mr. Kevin Burns. Now, Kevin is a man who's been called the Keeper of the Flame, maybe I should just say the Keeper, of all things Irwin Allen, as well as an executive producer and creator of the new Netflix Lost in Space series, which premiered on the 13th of April, 2018. He's joining us today to share his lifelong love of the original series and, of course, talk about the new reboot. Warning, 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 warning. You heard the robot. If you haven't watched the new series, you might want to stop now and wait until you do, because we are sparing no spoilers here. So, dear friends, you've been warned. A little background info on Mr. Burns. Kevin grew up in upstate New York, and by the time he was Will Robinson's age, he was already a big fan of Lost in Space, watching it during its first run broadcast. That started him on a journey that would result in personal friendships with the cast members of the original series, as well as Sheila Allen, Irwin's widow, and ultimately culminate in this beautiful new Netflix Lost in Space series. Along the way, he maintained his love of the series during his college years in New York and Boston, his teaching career at Boston University, and his later move to L.A., where he landed a marketing and promotions job at 20th Century Fox Television. Later, Kevin established several Hollywood production companies, was nominated for numerous Emmy Awards, winning two, including one for the superb A&E series Biography. He was also a writer, producer, or director on many highly acclaimed documentaries, including Empire of Dreams, The Story of the Star Wars Trilogy, Indiana Jones, The Ultimate Quest, The Fantasy Worlds of Irwin Allen, Lost in Space Forever, and many, many more. Indeed, Kevin is directly responsible for hundreds of hours of television across a wide range of subjects, but the franchise that holds first place in his heart is the subject of this humble podcast, Lost in Space. Kevin is also the driving force behind the beautifully restored and remastered 50th Anniversary Blu-ray Collection and Ultimate Soundtrack CD Collection that were released in 2015, and for that, all of us Lost in Space fans owe him a special debt of gratitude. Mr. Kevin Burns, sir, welcome to Alpha Control. It is such an honor to have you on our podcast celebrating Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Well, thank you very much, and I'm thrilled to be here. Well, thank you. And I, uh, before we begin, I, I have a couple of additional thank yous. 
Thank you so much for the Lost in Space 50th Anniversary Blu-ray set and the original soundtrack collection set. Those are so wonderful and have been such a treat uh, for so many people, myself included. And number two, thank you for this beautifully produced and written new Netflix Lost in Space series. I've already watched all 10 episodes. I'm re-watching them now, and I am just so totally blown away, impressed with it, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you for all of the above. Oh, well, you're more than welcome, but I can't take all the credit, uh, certainly not for the Netflix show. There's a huge team of people involved, and uh, I'm one of a number of producers, and it was a group effort, but I am equally pleased with the result. I, I waited, uh, you know, well, I've been working toward this for, uh, you know, full-time for like 15 years, but certainly uh, since... Uh, I was 10 years old. I, my, this was my dream. Oh, well, that's what I was going to kind of ask you to give us just a thumbnail sketch of what your relationship to the original series was and what it took for you to finally get Lost in Space back on the air. And I, I acknowledge it's a team effort and everything, but uh, since I'm talking to you, I'm going to ladle some extra credit on your back. I've loved Lost in Space ever since I was 10 years old. Uh, and I saw the original series on CBS. That that dates me, but uh, that tells you how old I am, but that's how old I am. Mm. And I have to say, I missed the first episode. Uh, I didn't get to see it. It drove me crazy. Oh. Every kid in school the next day was talking about it, and and the blast-off scene, and the silver suits, and the Jupiter 2, mm. and Dr. Smith and the robot. And, of course, I was there for the second episode and every episode afterwards. But I just loved Lost in Space as a kid. I I was deeply excited about the space program. I would build my little Ravel, uh, you know, Mercury and Gemini spacecraft model kits. Sure. And I thought, you know, I will someday, I will grow up to be Guy Williams and I will have kids that are wearing little silver suits and going to other planets. And I just really believed that in 1997, that was going to be my future. And, um, and, it, and that was shared by other uh, kids I went to school with. But one advantage I also had is that there was a little girl, I didn't go to school with her, but she lived behind my house. She was a year younger than me, so she would have been nine years old. Oh. And her father was a television writer in Hollywood. Now, I grew up in upstate New York, 3,000 miles away from Hollywood. Right. And uh, so the idea that a little girl that I played with, who was my neighbor, uh, had a father who was a television writer was a big deal. Well, the fa her father's name was Carrie Wilbur. Oh. And Carrie Wilbur wrote uh, a lot of westerns before that, but uh, he ended up working a lot for Irwin Allen. He was one of Irwin's favorite writers. He, he adapted from the original pilot, There Were Giants in the Earth, uh, he wrote some of the more fantastical episodes, right. like uh, His Majesty Smith and uh, uh, Visit to Hades and uh, The Sky Pirate uh, was his. Um, but he knew that Irwin loved, uh, you know, the kinds of books like Treasure Island that Carrie Wilbur and Irwin used to read as a child. So. Mm -hmm. He, he, you know, so a lot of Carrie Wilbur's episodes were very much based on mythology and uh, ancient lore and folk tales. 
And uh, and it's also, I think, uh, important to note that Kerry Wilbur was also the writer of on Star Trek of Space Seed, right? The episode featuring Khan, mm. which was made into uh, Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. So he had pretty big um, sci-fi cred. Uh, although at the time I just knew him as Nancy's father, but that enhanced my excitement about watching the show every week and thinking I might see his name. So I loved the show. And of course, when Batman came on in January of 1966, Mm. opposite Lost in Space and The Munsters, which was also my favorite show, (laughs) it was really hard to, to, to kind of reconcile that because I loved Lost in Space, I loved The Munsters, and I loved Batman. So I would sit... In those days, there was no, there was one TV in the house. I would sit like 10 inches from the set with my hand on the knob and go, boom, Batman, boom, back to Lost in Space, boom, Batman, boom, back to Lost in Space for the entire first half hour, starting with the second half of season one. Um, and uh, I loved them both, but I certainly preferred lost in space and I you know and, and you love it and then you kind of put it away and then I go to high school and it's um, it's in reruns and I'm watching the reruns every day mm-hmm. and now I find myself affecting a Dr. Smith imitation <laughs> which I bored everyone in school with I would say oh my dear lady let me get that for you oh dear oh dear oh the pain, the pain oh dear and uh Nina Dahlstead would say, Kevin, you don't have to keep talking like Dr. Smith. Oh, I, I'm so sorry. I so apologize if I've ended you. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, it, it, it didn't exactly uh, get me a lot of dates. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but, but the, um, uh, and then, you know, I, you know, you kind of watch it occasionally in reruns and you remember it fondly. And, uh, but then in 1988, I started working at 20th Century Fox. Uh, and, of course, it was the studio that made Batman and Star right. Wars and Alien and Planet of the Apes. And they made Lost in Space and all the other Irwin Allen TV shows that I loved, like The Time Tunnel and Land of the Giants and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Oh. And I, you know, uh, aided and abetted by a friend of mine from my hometown who would send me letters encouraging me to go on scavenger hunts. He, I, you know, found, tracked down that the robot was on, uh, in storage on a soundstage and found files having to do with the original Lost in Space and got a hold of Billy Mooney's phone number and mm. called him and invited him to the lot to see if he wanted to uh, visit his old studio and uh, mm-hmm. visit where I found the robot. And um, and it was really at that point that I realized two things, which is, one, I loved Lost in Space still, and two, that that love was not shared by virtually any other executive at 20th Century Fox. They, they did not care about the show. They, wow. thought, it, they thought it was goofy. Uh, they thought it was silly. They compared it to Star Trek, and they never thought there was any value in it. And I kept arguing that they were wrong. And so as a consequence of that, in 1990, um, I got a hold of Bill Mooney, and he introduced me to the other cast members. 
And it was uh, with Bill's help that we put everybody together for what was the first full, I'd have to say because Guy Williams had passed away, but the first full surviving cast reunion sure. in Boston in December of 1990. And, and uh, it was already a big event, but it was a much bigger event, and the total number of people that attended was 32,000 people. Wow. And, and, I, and I filmed the hell out of it, and I got them on... CBS this morning and the Today Show and uh, did all this press, all meant to kind of gather and bring back to Fox and say, "See, see, look, this is this is Lost in Space. This is Irwin Allen. You know, you you know, you see, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Well, that's Land of the Giants. Right. You see, you know, you see Back to the Future. That's the time tunnel. You know, right. lost. There wouldn't have been Star Wars without Lost in Space. There wouldn't have been John Williams without Lost in Space. Right. And um, and and then, of course, they didn't take it seriously until uh, Fox, um, you know, basically uh, forgot to renew the rights uh, to making a motion picture, and New Line grabbed them, and then all of a sudden. Fox looks at me like I'm a genius and says, you know, it's too bad we didn't do Lost in Space. Um, <laughs> now they decide, now, huh? <laughs> now, now New Line's going to do it, and it's too bad we didn't do it. Well, right. to make a long story short, by then I had met another executive at the studio who appreciated Irwin's legacy as much as I did, and his name is John Jashney. Right, your colleague, and, right? Uh, and he's now my colleague, but we started as executives. He was a movie producer. I was a television producer, and I had done. Uh, I had been involved in bringing Alienation back from what had been a motion picture and then a short-lived television series. I had uh, been part of a TV movie division that brought it back as a series of five TV movies for for the Fox Network. Mm. And uh, so I thought, well, now I have some credibility. And so John and I approached Sheila Allen, uh, Irwin's widow, and uh, of course, Lost in Space. It was already too late. But uh, and then I did the Fantasy Worlds of Irwin Allen TV special, which we had a uh, two nickels and a dime to make that special, and uh, all of it went into rebuilding the exterior set of the Jupiter too. <laughs> but it was meant to kind of show Sheila that there were people at Fox who cared and that, uh, and I was certainly one of them. And it did really help me build what turned out to be a tremendous relationship with Sheila. And then when John left Fox as a, to be a, an independent producer, uh, and I stayed at Fox to have my own production company called Prometheus Entertainment, John and I decided, well, why don't we get together separate from each of our day jobs We'll form a company called Synthesis Entertainment, and we will represent Irwin's library. We'll work with Sheila, and we will manage and develop all of her husband's properties. And that was started in 1999, mm. and rights to Lost in Space, after the New Line movie came and went, uh, came to us in 2001. Mm. And from that point on, John and I um, were you know, as active as we could be in developing the Irwin Library. Um, uh, first at Fox, because Fox had a lot of interest, obviously, still in Lost in Space, 
as the distributor of the original show, but uh, but also because we were partnered with them through Sheila on Times on the Land of the Giants and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. So we made our initial deal with Fox, which is how we developed a time tunnel pilot and later that, um, uh, you know, aborted uh, attempt that we did for Lost in Space with John Woo. Right. Um, and then when John later went to Legendary and became the chief creative officer and president of Legendary uh, with Thomas Tull, um, you know, Sheila gave us her blessing that we would at some point move her husband's asset uh, after she passed, because she knew she was going to pass away, um, mm. to Legendary, with John and I still very much in charge of the development. And that's really the whole story of how it ended up going to Legendary and how John and I began developing it uh, for what became the new series on Netflix. Well, uh, that is quite a story, and it's a testament to your commitment and dedication, you and uh, John, to to do this. And it's it's resulted in something that's just so spectacular. You know, uh, my partner and I doing this podcast, we've been rewatching the first several episodes of the original series as we review it for our podcast. And one of the themes that really comes through when you're watching those shows is not only is it more serious science fiction and adventure, but the concept of the Robinsons of a, as a family. And I actually think that's one of the real strengths of this new series. It seems very character-driven, and you really get the sense that this is, this is a real family. This isn't a, a make-believe family of geniuses or something like that. What, what would you have to say about that? Well, that was deliberate on our part, and I don't want to take anything away from uh, the writers, the people that developed this with us, Matt Sazima and Burke Sharpless. Uh, or Zach Estrin, who was brought in uh, a little later. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you how this came about, which was um, in, uh, it started about four years ago, in 2014, um, when we um, brought the, the rights to Lost in Space to Net, to, uh, I'm sorry, to Legendary. Mm. Um, you know, John and I had already been kind of beaten up. Um, by, you know, not only our experience with, you know, uh, we weren't involved in the New Line movie, but we weren't happy with it. But it kind of made the property radioactive for a while. I mean, that had been a remake. So when we first got the rights, we decided to do what would effectively be a sequel. And NBC was very, very excited about doing it with us. It was going to be called Lost in Space, The Journey Home. It would feature the original cast along with a new family and new characters, but the new family and the new characters would basically find and rescue the Robinsons, uh, and and Bill Mooney as Will Robinson would stay with the new family because they have to make a Sophie's Choice as to who um, is going to... Um, stay behind and who was going to leave because only one ship can make the journey. Uh-huh. And it was going to lead to a new spin-off series with elements of the original series. And Jonathan Harris was going to be in it. And it was about four months from being uh, shot. And Jonathan passed away with the script on his lap, literally. Mm. Oh. And, uh, and so we were crushed by that. That was in 2002. 
Then we got approached uh, a year later by a writer who had worked on Buffy the Vampire Slayer with Joss Whedon, a guy by the name of Doug Petrie. And he came to us with a very stripped-down version of Swiss Family Robinson. Uh, you know, it was lost in space, but there was no robot, and there was no um, Dr. Smith. Mm. And at that point, we were kind of like, well, you know, we didn't have an awful lot of enthusiasm for it because we, you know, we were still kind of sad that we didn't get to make the journey home. Sure. And uh, But we were open to it, and we found that, you know, we pitched it to four places, and there were four buyers, but and the most eager buyer for Doug Petrie's project was CBS, which really, really wanted it. Um, but the people at Fox, with whom John and I were in, in, in business and who had more control than we did, they wanted it on the WB. And the WB, you know, with the best of intentions, but they developed it away from where it started. They made it more and more about Judy and Don, oh. uh, and which we didn't think was going to work. And there was still no Dr. Smith in it, although now there was a robot played by a marionette, which was, and I, you know, and I was miserable about it, and I was thrilled when it didn't sell. And, uh, and then we waited, and then when, uh, uh, and then Legendary, we developed it again. Now going back to CBS, we developed a script. Um, and then CBS, when the economy tanked in 2009, they decided not to go forward. And then uh, we did another pass, this time with Warner Television, and there were no buyers. So we had had a really tough time uh, trying to get this thing up and running. So what happened was when Sheila passed away and we were no longer tied to a studio, uh, I credit John with saying, look, I'm head of Legendary. We have money. We've been very successful. Let's you and I develop it the way we want to do it and then sell it. Oh. And and we will not go through a studio. Legendary will be the studio. And that sounded good to me because right. it gave us more control. And, uh, and uh, John uh, and Peter Johnson at Legendary introduced us to Matt and Burke. And Matt and Burke came in and sat with us. This was four years ago, almost exactly. And, and they, 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 we had a two-hour meeting. Uh, where basically I said, guys, um, here's what we've done. Here's what has been done right. Here's what's been done wrong. And when you approach Lost in Space, you have to decide which Lost in Space you want to make. Uh, you know, first season, second season, or third season. Mm. And, and I said, for my money, the season that the fans most like is season one. And the part of season one I most like is the first half a dozen episodes. Mm. And there are scattered other episodes that I think are great. And I gave them a list of episodes, including, you know, Wish Upon a Star, Return from Outer Space, Follow the Leader, uh, The Keeper 1 and 2, mm. uh, and obviously the first five. And, uh, and also Invaders from the Fifth Dimension, War of the Robots, and, and the Unaired Pilot. And I said, look, Irwin intended this to be a serious, family-oriented, action-adventure drama. 
uh, you know, a, a science fiction thriller. But to, to Irwin, it was always meant to be the Swiss Family Robinson in space. Right. The space part was parenthetical. It was not really science fiction. It was a family adventure drama. And, and so with that, and then we also said to Matt and Burke, again, not taking anything away from them, we said, look, we are open to various changes because John and I have given this a lot of thought. Um, we're open to Dr. Smith being a woman. Oh. Um, and uh, and they, they were surprised to hear that. And I said, well, um, Jonathan Harris cuts a very long shadow. Um, we didn't think that Gary Oldman emerged from it very well, as great an actor as he is. Sure. And we thought, why invite comparisons to what Jonathan did? And making the character a female character adds different dimensions to what can be done with that character, and it signals that it's a more adult-themed approach. Um, the other suggestion we made was that the family not all be geniuses, right. um, although it's hard to argue, even in the new incarnation, that they're not pretty smart. Oh, yeah. But, um, but we said, look, we want it to be real. We want them to have real problems and, 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 and have real family dynamics. We love the original show, but they, they've got to be more realistic and more what a family would be in the year 2045. Um, and, and in that sense, we also suggested that there be a mixed-race Judy, which was an idea we had actually presented to CBS back in 2009, uh, um, that we that Maureen it would give Maureen Robinson a past, uh, an earlier husband or a, an affair, um, but but something that would give her something to play because one of the things that we've heard from the original actors, um, you know, from June Lockhart and Mark Goddard and Marta Kristen over the years is that they were frustrated that the characters were not as fully dimensional as they had hoped. Right. And they had originally been promised when they signed on. And that was something I was very sensitive to, that we give them something to chew on. You know, we give the characters arcs so that they're not perfect people, but that they can resolve their problems during the course of the series. So, so we wanted Judy to be, you know, we, we were kind of like, she could be African-American, obviously she's mixed race, or she could be Latina uh, or, or Asian, um, uh, Asian-American or whatever. But the, uh, but the idea is we wanted it to suggest, without making an issue of her race, uh, we wanted it to suggest that Maureen had had a previous marriage and that this was a blended family. Because, you know, I've done TV shows where, uh, they have featured casts that are blended casts, and I think it reflects where a lot of American families are going to be in 2035. Um, I also suggested that they not strand them on a planet without 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 other humans. Right. And and that was again something that surprised them to hear. And I said, look, we don't want to do Gilligan's Planet, um, you know, because after six or seven episodes. It's going to wear thin, but they're just talking to each other. And, and if you don't want to end up with the alien of the week, um, we're going to have to strand them with other humans. 
which we knew was taking a risk with the format. But we figured, you know, as long as the Robinsons stay the focal point, that will still be lost in space. And so um, and well, we talked about other ideas, but they went away for a couple of months, came back, and they pitched what was the first hour. And it was a floating card in a game of Go Fish. And that immediately got John and I excited. Then... <laughs> They talked about, we only see the crash from their point of view. Mm. We feel it. We don't see it, which was kind of like trying to get your head around that. And then, uh, but that it lands on a glacier. And this was something we thought was startling, never been thought of before. Uh, and that the ship would be so hot that like a knife through butter, it would sink in the ice um, as it was melting around it. Right. That's and that cool. one of the characters would have to go in and retrieve something. And we, we were deciding, is it Maureen? Is it Judy? Is it Penny? Um, and it was decided it'd be Judy uh, and, uh, and that she would, in her struggle to come back to the surface, be trapped as the ice was now cooling again, as the ship cooled, and that she would be trapped like a bug in amber. And and that was as far as Matt and Burke got in that first meeting, and we were like, they're doing it. Yep. Um, we, we, you know, they were open to the ideas we had suggested. They brought in fresh ideas of their own. Um, they were clearly excited about working in the, on, the, on the franchise and in the genre. Um, and, uh, and John, I have to credit John, was a big fan of their work. And, uh, you know, and we acknowledged that their first couple of movies had not performed very successfully. And John, you know, who was, of course, president of Legendary and reads everybody's work, he said, well, their scripts were much better than the execution of them. And it wasn't their fault. And so with that in mind, we trusted them to do a great job. We worked very closely with them. Uh, we brought in next Neil Marshall, the director, who had a deal with Legendary. Um, Neil came in, his favorite thing in the world was Indiana Jones. Mm. He came to my office, he watched the unaired pilot, he watched all the outtakes. He, he and his partner, uh, Mark Helwig, gave us their thoughts and their ideas. And John and I were tremendously excited about Neil being involved because he saw it as, a, as an epic. He saw it as a motion picture. And, um, and so we worked with um, Peter Johnson uh, Matt and Burke, uh, Neil and Mar and uh, and uh, um, and Mark Helwig for about a year on that script, and we polished it and polished it and came up with uh, Smith not really being Smith and uh, right. and uh, and uh, changing Don West and and the big change which I think was a, a kind of a I'll credit Matt and Burke but I believe it was a kind of a collective thought of of the robot being an alien robot. Right. And then we talked about um, Will performing an act of kindness like Androcles and the Lion, because John's favorite movie is Iron Giant, and mm. we wanted to have that quality of Iron Giant and Black Stallion, and, and still be true to the original love that Will Robinson had for the robot in the original series. So, so all of these ideas meshed, and... We went to 10 networks, 
we got uh, seven rejections. And the last three networks we went to, but of course by now we were really sharp and Matt and Burke were really practiced at pitching. Right. Uh, because they had not done television before. Um, but, uh, and it was NBC, Fox Network, and Netflix. And the dirty secret was that we really, really wanted Netflix, and which is why we had brought it to them last, because we wanted to really make sure that what we went in with was perfect. Sure. And, um, and you know, to their credit, NBC um, was excited about it. Fox Network, which at the time was headed by David Madden, who was a close friend of John and I, and David Madden is a brilliant executive and a wonderful guy. He loved it. He wanted it. But Netflix wanted it and offered us 10 episodes with an insanely wonderful budget. And it was an offer too good to pass up. And when David Madden called us and said, yes, but you could make a lot more money personally if you did it uh, through the Fox Network, I said, David, I love you to death, but I want to make Lost in Space. I right. said, I've been this for you know, 30 years since I started working at Fox. I've been at it for 20 years since uh, John and I met, and, uh, and I'm going to go with whoever's going to guarantee me 10 episodes. And once we went with Netflix, we brought in Zach Estrin. Zach Estrin, right. And, uh, and Zach uh, was perfectly suited for it. Um, has all the right sensibilities of uh, family and emotion and storytelling. And, uh, and he really turned uh, what was a great pilot pitch, it wasn't a script yet, into 10 really wonderful stories that link together, much like the original first five episodes did, uh, to tell a tremendous story but also one with all the values that you cited with family and, and incredible characters. And I credit Zach along with Matt and Burke and Neil with the casting. I mean, um, the cast is perfect. Uh, I mean, uh, everybody was our first choice. Everybody was an obvious choice to us. Um, you know, Parker Posey was uh, tremendously exciting to us. She's exactly what we wanted for Dr. Smith. I mean, I could name them all. Molly Parker. Oh, they're terrific. They, they really are I mean, terrific. I, I, yeah, you, I mean, she brings integrity, and Toby Stevens is, is, is a kind of a, a guy's guy. Uh, he'd been on Black Sails. He's a brilliant actor. And uh, I, I just, you know, and Max and Taylor and Mina and Ignacio, it's really, a, and they've become a family. In fact, right the, the night before the premiere, John and I hosted a dinner of mm. the new cast and the original cast, and it was really special. Oh, well, you believe it. You believe, but I mean, watching this, you actually, you, it, it, it shines through that they, uh, they feel like a family, I think. I, I, there's, there's too much in there that's, that's pure acting. I know they're great actors and everything. I, I was going to say, I, I think you did a, you hit the, the ball out of the park with the casting. I, I might only have one slight bone to pick with you, and that would be Debbie as a chicken, but that's just because I missed the, 
<laughs> I missed the bloop. Well, the... well, to be honest, I mean, the chicken was a gag that was in the <laughs> script, and I think it was my suggestion or somebody's to name her Debbie, um, because we certainly weren't going to have a chimpanzee. In I a hat. know, I know. And uh, so I think it was just an homage to the original show. And there's a couple of them. I mean, one is that the uh, character that uh, Ignacio rescues in episode two, her name is Angela Goddard. Goddard, right. I saw that. Tip of the hat to Angela Cartwright and Mark Goddard. And, of course, the the delicious, irresistible irony that Parker Posey's character's quote-unquote real name is June Harris, (laughs) um, which I thought was... You know, um, oh, yes. given that given that Jonathan and June always, you know, they had a great love for each other, but there was also times of rivalry and sure. competition. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, well, it, you know, it, it's my way of marrying them for eternity. Um, and I'm sure Jonathan <laughs> is either laughing at me or or cursing me. But one way or the other, uh, I I thought it would be, as June would say, it would be a hoot. I hope you're enjoying this rare interview with Lost in Space producer-creator Kevin Burns as much as I am, and I'll let you in on a little secret. He originally had only agreed to a 30-minute interview beforehand, but once we started talking Lost in Space, the fanboy in him wouldn't stop. So we're getting a double dose of his first-hand knowledge and experience with this franchise, and I couldn't have been happier. Sit tight for part two of our interview with The Keeper. Of Lost in Space, Mr. Kevin Burns. Yeah, well, you do. I know you do a killer, Jonathan Harris, because uh, watching the the epilogue table read on the Blu-ray, it, it it's good. Tell me, what would Jonathan Harris say about this Lost in Space? Well, Kevin, if you can't have me, <laughs> at least you have something. Uh, it will never be the original, never, but it will be not too bad. Uh. That's what I would say. Not too bad, not too shabby. You did pretty good, kid. Not too shabby, but it doesn't have me, but whatever. Uh, he, he was such a treasure, man. I, I, I regret I never got to meet him in person so i'm i'm very jealous of you i you know uh kevin the the it's so clear when you watch this that uh erwin allen's vision is all through the dna of this new series i mean it's it's different the production values there and i love the differences because as you mentioned we get much more background story of the characters we get to know they're not two-dimensional they're much more three-dimensional and that just makes it all the you're invested uh, after that first episode, I was totally invested. Well, it, I have to say, you know, look, a lot of television, and I've been in this business for a long time, a lot of television is made by people who don't love what they make. Mm. And they don't love who they make it for. And I think that shows when that's the truth. Mm. Um, there's a lot of people who say, well, they'll like it. Well, what do you think of it? Well, it will work for them. Uh, they'll like it. We may, you know, but they don't get the audience. They don't care about the audience. And and I have to say, Zach, Matt, and Burke, Neil, and Mark, um, 
John and I certainly um, cared about um, the, the fans of the original show. They, we cared that it would be appropriate. And I'll, I'll tell you, when we were doing the 50th anniversary, and I, and I appreciate the compliment about the Blu-rays, because oh, yeah. that was very, very important for me uh, to get that done. And I, and I credit Sheila with getting it done because um, we knew it was going to be very, very expensive. And, and Fox doesn't own Lost in Space. They don't own the original show. Uh, it was owned by Sheila and um, uh, her business partners who were Red Skelton's widow and Guy Della Chapa's widow. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, they were still making revenue from the original show. Every six months, Fox would send them a decent-sized check from the original show, believe it or not. Wow. But, um, but I, I said, you know, Sheila... Um, the show looks okay, and you probably can't tell the difference. I said, but um, it's like Irwin left you a really, really valuable and expensive house, but it's got a leaky roof, and if you don't fix it now, it's going to fall in on itself. Right. And, and I showed her this test, which we put up online, of the existing master, which was an old one-inch transfer done in 1987, and what we could do by remastering it in HD, and uh, mm. and she she was willing to underwrite out of her pocket over seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Wow! And that's a lot of money to ask somebody who's in poor health. Sure. Uh, and uh, but I promised her that we would get it back, and uh, and thanks to the people at Fox, uh, we did. Um, and, uh, and the consequence of that is that every one of those original 83 hours plus pilots is pristine. And we worked, it took us three years to do it. We did it over time. We were very fussy. We were making sure that nothing was missing. Um, sometimes we found surprising things had been missing for 30 years that we restored. Like some screams? Uh, well, the screams, but also uh, one interesting story was that in the teaser, you know, the, the, the cliffhanger going into the Golden Man episode, right. uh, uh, and um, uh, I can't remember the episode it came out of, um, but uh, uh, it's the one with John Abbott. But, but anyway, the, the, at the end of the John Abbott episode, um, uh, was the cliffhanger for the Golden Man, and uh, and it faded up mid sentence on Jonathan talking, hmm. and um, and I thought, well, that doesn't seem right, and I went back to the DVDs, and that's how they were on the DVDs, and I went back to the VHS copies, and that's how they were on the VHS copies, and and I thought, well, this doesn't seem right, and I and I found online somebody who'd written a very detailed synopsis and it says uh penny is picking flowers and uh and uh and, and they have this discussion about breakfast and eating and i thought well that's not in there right so i actually had a complete set <laughs> this is what kind of a nerd i am of <laughs> episodes on 16 millimeter oh wow and i put up the 16 millimeter print i have and um 
sure enough, there was the complete cliffhanger. So somewhere between 1970-something and 1987, it got missing, including the audio. In other words, it was gone. Oh, oh. I'm sorry. We found the picture in the vault, but we found no audio. The audio had been erased. So we were able to not only restore the picture, but we were able to take the audio from a 16-millimeter optical track from my print <laughs> and match it so that we could restore it. So that's what kind of care we gave to the original elements and, um, and all the, the third-season trailers and everything. So, so we did that, and that was something we were very, very proud of. But, we, but getting back to the Netflix show, the, the people involved, uh, and, and I'm sure the people who did the New Line movie were sincere. Uh, I, I can't speak for them because I didn't work on that. But, the, um, but the, these people, Matt Burke, Zach, Neil, everybody, really cared to get it right and really cared to tell a great story. But I will tell you another thing that informed us, which was when uh, during the 50th anniversary as we were putting out the Blu-ray set. Mm. And, Mark, and Mark Cushman approached us about doing a definitive three-volume set of the history of the original series. And, um, That's and my we, Bible, we, by we, the way. <laughs> well, when we dug into all the research about the origin of Lost in Space, and it, and it taught me a lot about how it really got started. In fact, I don't even, I think we found some information even after Mark wrote his book uh, and dug deep into the whole story about Ib Melchior and a lot of the myths about that, which turned out to really not be true. Um, but the real story um, uh, was that Irwin, um, after Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, was very, very, very hot and in demand for making science fiction on television, mm. which at the time was thought to be impossible because no one could figure out a way to afford it. And they, and they were impressed that he had figured out a way to do it on a television budget for ABC for Voyage. But he wanted to do Swiss Family Robinson. That right. was his idea. And he went to CBS to do Swiss Family Robinson, and they did not want to do Swiss Family Robinson because they had just bought Gilligan's Island. Mm. And they said, well, we don't need another show about you know six or seven people stranded somewhere. Right. We're over doing that show. And uh, they said, but... And I think they CBS had been pitched an idea based on the comic book, uh, Space Family Robinson. Uh -huh. But they didn't have any faith that the people who pitched it could execute it. Mm. And so they said could you see doing it in space? And Erwin mm. said, if, you know, well, uh, yeah. So Erwin went um, with Herman Rush, who was his, uh, at the time his agent, and Shimon Winselberg, who was one of his favorite writers. Mm. And Erwin kind of developed a treatment for what became originally Space Family Robinson. It was quickly changed to Lost in Space. And it was really just meant to be that. And when you see the pilot, the original pilot, which also when, when Angela and Marta and Bill and Mark did the audio commentary that we did with Mike Clark, 
for the Blu-ray, right? They hadn't seen the unaired pilot probably ever, oh. and I remember listening to them marveling at how spectacular it was and how serious it was and right. and and how smart it was and 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 then you know and a lot of them had for years thought that Jonathan changed the show to suit himself mm. and uh, and that Irwin let him do it and they really bought into this idea that the show became more of a fantasy um, because it was what Jonathan did. And when reading all the correspondence and reading all the memos from CBS, you realize that's not true. No. And it would have never been true that CBS changed the show because CBS wanted a family show that would not scare children. <clears throat> Keep in mind that the kids, uh, 7, 8, 9, 10 years old, in the house with one TV set, controlled the dial. Right. And he who, and he who controlled the dial controlled the evening. Right. And so CBS figured if you can appeal to seven and eight and ten year olds, you would be able to be the number one network. Well, that's exactly how they did it. And that's why ABC put Batman on opposite Lost in Space and the Munsters, which was to steal the audience back from CBS. So, so Lost in Space became more of a kid's show because CBS wanted it that way. Right. And and so what all of us doing the new show argued was, well, let's do the show Irwin Allen would have done. Let's do the show Irwin would have done if he had had the special effects we have today. If he had had the ability to make it a family show, but not necessarily a show targeting seven and eight and 10 year old kids. Right. A show, ten, because I have to tell you, I was a 10 year old kid. I loved the first five episodes, and so we just thought, well, we don't want to repeat the original show because there's 84 hours of that show right. uh, on, on Blu-ray, on, on, on Apple TV. It's gorgeous. It will never be replicated. Jonathan Harris will not do, you know, he, he, he's not here. Right. So, so to fans who kind of look at the Netflix show and say, well, it's not my Lost in Space. Well, that's okay, because that Lost in Space has been beautifully preserved and will last forever. But what we wanted was the Lost in Space that never was, right. the Lost in Space that could have been. And that's really what I think we've done. Oh, I think so. It's, it's definitely a show that will appeal to the adults um, out there. And I, I still call it family-friendly, though. I mean, there, there there's definitely some 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 scary scenes and so forth and so on. But it seems to me like it's something that maybe not real little kids, but uh, the whole family can enjoy watching. Of course, well, tastes, yeah, tastes yeah, and standards yeah, well, I mean, are different. We also had to, yeah, I was, I'm sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say that um, you also have to realize that since 1965 and 67 and 8, um, you know, there's been 50 years of science fiction, you know, movies and television. Uh, right. You know, the audience has now seen Star Wars and Star Trek and Galactica and, uh, you know, Timeless and, and everything else. So, so you know, you have to make it, again, the way Irwin would make it in today's world, not right. as a, an, not as a, um, an homage to the past, but as something that brings the past into the future. 
and so yeah, I mean it 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 it's definitely meant to be uh, an adult but family friendly series. Right. And it was so great to see Bill Mooney as the uh, the the real Doctor Smith on there as well. That was that was really a treat. Well, that was an interesting evolution too, because we knew that Parker's Doctor Smith was going to have to steal that she would be a stowaway effectively, and that she would have to steal someone's identity to get on a Jupiter to get off, you know, the Resolute. Right. And um, and then. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to take credit, but I think it was my idea in one of the legendary meetings. Um, and I said, what if she steals his identity, too? Like, she doesn't just take his pass onto the ship, but she, that the guy she knocks out, his name is, he's Dr. Z. Smith, and she has to take his identity. And we were all excited by that. I was kind of relieved that Matt and Burke uh embraced it because i thought well i know the fans are going to kill me for making her a woman to begin with so if i can at least say well she's not really the real dr smith even though she effectively is dr smith and uh and we'll do that so we we wrote that in the script now i did not show the script to Bill Mooney, and i didn't deliberately because bill and i've been friends for a long time mm. and and Lost in Space means the world to him. I mean, it's very personal. Uh, it is his identity. He's lived with Will Robinson for 53 years. I mean, he's not obsessed with it, but I mean, he's a very smart, talented guy. But he respects it, and he protects it, and he and I have worked together on almost everything that I've done with regard to Lost in Space. And when he knew John and I were doing this, you know, he was understandably wary, and he was a little bit kind of like, why am I not writing it? Why, why, hey, Kevbo, why aren't you and I writing it? And I said, well, because, you know, I'm not going to be able to write a $95 million movie or, t- or epic, and, and, uh, and also I've got a lot of other stuff I'm doing. So, um, <clears throat> so he felt a little bit, you know, um, well, good luck with it. You know, he didn't mm. really want to. And I, and I was afraid that if he didn't like it, I didn't want him not to like it. And uh, so all of a sudden he called me, and I guess Liliana, his daughter, was up for the part of Penny. Oh. She was sent the script, which, of course, Bill, I'm sure, snatched from her hands. <laughs> and he read it, <clears throat> and he called me up, and he said, I've just read the script, and I'm thinking, okay, here it comes. Mm. He said, I love it. You did it. Wow. It's perfect. I want to be the guy that Parker Posey knocks out at oh. the end. And and I was so relieved and excited, and he really was excited, and he really was. He said, and look, even if it doesn't work out that I can play that part, even if they don't want me to do it, I don't care. You nailed it. It's great. I'm jealous. Oh, and that's um, awesome. And I was thrilled. And so I, I mentioned it to Matt and Burke and Zach, and Neil, because we, we had dinner one night at, um, uh, and and uh, and they said, you know, well, you know, we're we're struggling with cameos, and we want to include everybody, but we're not sure we can do it in the first season, and maybe if we get a season two. 
And then I got a call from Zach Estrin, um, uh, you know, a couple weeks later, and he said, do you think Bill would do it? Mm. And I said, I can't speak for him, but I know he would love to be considered for it. And and then, you know, they went back and forth, and, uh, and uh, you know, they made it worth Bill's while, and I think that uh, they were very shrewd to do that. And... Mm. Uh, and Bill went up there to Vancouver, and they treated him like gold. Wow. Uh, the, the cast was thrilled. He was thrilled. They had a great time. I went up there with John and with Derek Tilgis, who we work with on Synthesis uh, and works with us on the show. And we saw the scene being shot with Bill, and we all went out to dinner with Parker. And it was incredible. Mm. And I'll tell you a detail that most people don't know. Maybe you know this, but most people don't, which is Jonathan always wore this ring. I've noticed the ring. I've noticed that. Well, Jonathan always wore a ring all the time in everything he did. It was given to him when he was on Broadway doing theater. Someone gifted it to him. He never took it. You know, he loved it. He he always prized it. And he wore it until the day he died. And uh, so... Bill said to me, uh, if I'm going to do this, I'd love to wear the ring. Well, we found out that uh, Jonathan's son, Richard, uh, had altered the ring because he gave it to his wife, and it was turned into a ring for her. Uh. So the, the ring, sad as it is to admit, doesn't exist anymore. But Bill shared the story offhandedly to uh, Zach Estrin. And said, oh, I was really open to wear this ring that Jonathan had. Well, God bless Zach. He had the prop department make him one. It wasn't real gold with a real um, amethyst stone. But he had the prop department make a facsimile of the ring. And Billy's wearing it in the scene. Mm. And you freeze frame it. You can see it. But that's an homage to Jonathan. Oh, that's so awesome. That is great. I I appreciate you sharing that with us, and I uh, now I've got something else to look for as I'm rewatching the episode. So thank you for that. There, there's a lot of I guess what are called Easter eggs dotted all through uh, the first season, and the, the other thing that and and this was all not just me pushing it, by the way, or John and I pushing it. Um, you know, when when uh, when we started this, and Zach and the writers. Uh, because in addition to Matt and Burke, there's a very talented group of writers, and um, <clears throat> and uh, one of the senior writers, her name is Vivian Lee, and not Vivian Lee from Gone with the Wind, but Vivian L.E.E., and she's an Asian-American, and uh, and she's like a big fan of my show Ancient Aliens, and mm. and, a lot, and and they all wanted to know what episodes should they watch, and in fact, one of the new writers on, uh, because we are doing, I, I, I'm probably breaking news, but they are writing scripts for season two. Uh, there's no official pickup yet for a second season, but they are doing scripts. Okay, and, I was going to ask. Uh, well, I mean, you know, uh, Netflix has said, yes, we think you should write scripts, and uh, and we're probably three or four weeks away from hearing if they're going to pick up a season two. But one of the new writers... Um, is uh, a writer named Liz Segal, and uh, uh, Jonathan was her babysitter. Oh. And, and so she was so excited to be on the show 
because Jonathan was her babysitter. And uh, so there's a lot of DNA. So when I see the episodes and uh, or read the treatments and the scripts, and you see that they're in the second episode, they go aboard the alien spacecraft, the derelict alien spacecraft. The, the derelict, and, right. Right, and they see this star map of the right. universe, which is so much, you know, uh, kind of based on episode two of the original series. Right. <clears throat> and even, I don't want to spoil it, but in one of the last episodes, there's uh, a rescue with a space harpoon. Right. And it, 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 it you know, it uh, <laughs> makes you think of episode two and three of the original series. Right. And also, um, you know, the episode uh, where, where John has to rescue the robot right. in the first episode of season three. So, um, but there's a lot of, you know, there's a War of the Robots reference. There's a, uh, and, and I will say that as they're planning season two, um, they're, they're looking at other episodes for inspiration. Uh, Welcome Stranger is one. Uh, I want to give away, but there's, there's a lot of, I mean, these, the, the, I cannot express what a dream job this has been. Because oh. I've been involved in so many attempts to do Lost in Space that were heartbreaking. And this one is certainly not that. Well, well, you certainly deserve it. And you've left us hungry for more, which I think is the, uh, the showbiz uh, credo, isn't it? Because we're all, we're all sitting here already going. <laughs> that was the, the good thing about being able to watch all 10 episodes uh, in a binge fest like my wife and I did was you could do it. The bad thing is it was sort of like, ah, now how long do we have to wait to find out what happens next? Well, I compare it to my, my mother used to complain about with regard to Thanksgiving dinner. My mother would say, you know, it took four days to make the meal and 20 minutes to eat it. <laughs> and and, and I, I felt in this case, it took us four years to make the meal and 20 and, and 10 to 20 hours to watch it. So, uh, it was, uh, you know, it was over before I knew it. And, and look, we all love it. I mean, I can't wait to see season two, mm. um, you know, and, uh, and also just seeing the evolution of how these episodes have become what they are. And, uh, I mean, there's a real story in that at some point because, um, you know, Zach and the cast, you know, and, uh, the, the work that's gone into, uh, making it better and better and better. And, and, and I have to say, Netflix has been a tremendous partner. I'm not shilling for them, but they've been extremely supportive. I mean, I'm proud to say that the, the treatment we walked in with for episode one never got changed. Wow. Um, uh, in other words, it's not like the network said, no, no, do this, do that. And, and I, I have to confess, I'm a little stung at, and, and not to say that things are perfect, and if I, you know, were were pressed, I would be able to tell you all the things I think that could be better. And I think Matt and Burke and Zach would say the same thing. Uh, you know, none of us think it's perfect um, because nothing is. Nothing. Yeah. But um, but you know, I I always get a little stung when people think, well, they put that in because the network probably wanted this, or there's an anti-gun agenda, or Judy is mixed race because somebody had to do some kind of. Uh, uh, you know, PC police thing. And it's not true. It really was not true. Uh, we did not create anything uh, in the show that was meant to pander to some agenda. Uh, it was literally because we felt that 
we wanted to reflect where we think the American family is going to be in 35 to 40 years. Um, we recognized that this was going to be sent to 200 countries on the same day, uh, that, it's, right. that we needed to embrace the fact that if the Resolute is colonizing deep space with humans, that they're going to be multiracial, multi-ethnic humans. Um, but, for example, when Neil called me, because, you know, Toby Stevens, who, again, I think is brilliant as John Robinson, uh, Toby's, you know, he's British, you know, he's, uh, he's from England. And, Matt, and Neil, who's very close friends with him, said, um, can we have a British John Robinson? Uh, would you object if he did his, his, his British accent? And I said, um, I think we've made enough changes <laughs> that the audience probably couldn't suffer one more. Yeah. And let's keep it, you know, an American family. Because right. that's really the DNA of what it was. And it may be an American family now in a very different environment, but it's but it's still got to be at its core an American family. I'm not going to criticize any of those uh, those artistic or content choices that you made. And you know, I'm sure you know better than I do the the fan base of Lost in Space is very protective of it. Not quite to the level of the way you described Bill Mooney, but you know they should be very happy with this. And I think overall they are. There's always going to be a, a little sniping from the back of the room, but I think, I think you guys did an, a fantastic job. And as I said, we're waiting for, we're waiting for more. So we'll keep our fingers crossed. Hey, before we let you go, cause you've actually been way too generous with your time with me today, sir, but I have two more things I just wanted to mention. Number one was I love your documentary on Cleopatra, the movie. It's, <laughs> I don't know if you ever get, comments about it anymore, but uh, I think it's fantastic. And I also wanted to ask how the robot is doing these days, and if you'd say hello to him for me. <laughs> well, um, do you want me to respond? Sure. Well, the Cleopatra doc, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I came to 20th Century Fox in 1988 determined to make that documentary, not having a clue whether or not anyone would let me because I always thought the story of the making of that movie was a great story that was better than the movie. Mm. And it took that, that, that we could do another big session on how that documentary got made. But it, it, believe it or not, it, it got the attention of Lucasfilm. And the people at Lucasfilm saw it, and it actually beat uh, an episode one documentary in a competition. And it led to them hiring me to do Star Wars Empire of Dreams and The Legacy Revealed and oh. seven years' worth of uh, association I had with Lucasfilm um, kind of chronicling the story behind Star Wars. And that was a tremendous honor. And it also became the favorite documentary of Brian Singer, uh, who I'd known since he was a film student. And Brian loved it, loved it, loved it. He calls me every so often asking for 10 copies of it to give to friends. And it led him to convince the people at Warner Brothers that I should do the the history of Superman. So uh, I have to mm. tell you, it, it's still it's something that I gift to people. In fact, I just sent a copy of it to Parker Posey, who asked me for it. Oh. Uh, because Brian used to talk it up with her when they were doing Superman Returns. 
So, so it comes full circle that you mentioned the Cleopatra doc. And as far as the robot goes, one thing I didn't mention was the choice of the robot in the new show and right. his design and his origin story was the hardest thing we came to grips with. Um, it was the biggest decision we had to make um, because obviously I'm well aware of how loved the original robot is. Mm. And, uh, and again, I think like making Parker Posey a woman, we didn't want to compete with that and needed to make the robot different uh, so that it wouldn't be seen as competition with the original. And I credit Matt and Burke with uh, the development of that and the backstory of that and the ingeniousness of that. And I credit Neil Marshall with the design of it, which has kind of a bubble head. And John and I were deeply involved in those choices, but we, um, but we were really wanting desperately, like we were afraid that that would be the most rejected aspect, that it didn't look like quote-unquote, the B9. And, uh, and I have to say I'm impressed with how many people love the change. Not, in other words, not to disparage the original, but they've embraced the new robot as being a very different robot with a very different story. So that's been very reassuring. And as far as the original goes, he's, he's well. <laughs> he, uh, he enjoys a, a semi-retirement because, you know, he was in Ted 2, um, uh, and if uh, people look closely, he makes a pretty significant cameo appearance uh, as a Trendmasters toy in Ready Player One. Uh, I know, was, yes. <laughs> and he was in a GE commercial a couple of years ago, which paid for his, uh, his uh, 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 oil and uh, lubricant <laughs> for another several decades because he got very well paid for that GE commercial he was in. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, uh, so he's not retired. Uh, he'll still be making appearances. And, uh, and, uh, in fact, we just uh, made a deal with a fellow who's doing a whole new line of full size replicas through the B9 builders club. And, uh, Oh, I so got to hear about that because, uh, that, that is, that is on my bucket list of things to own one day. And I know there's... Well, Mike, Mike, Mike Joyce had the license and did a brilliant, brilliant job. But, uh, and, and Mike is a genius. Uh, and he sold about 60 of those full-size replicas. But we knew they were very, very expensive. And, and Mike just didn't have the heart to make one that was more kind of affordable to, you know, uh, you know quote-unquote normal people. Sure. Uh, including myself, so um, so they're still going to be pricey, but not twenty three thousand dollars a piece pricey. Um, but they're still going to be, you know, uh, they won't be able to, you know, they're not going to be really robotically operated, but they will light up and talk, and they will be perfectly realized replicas, and um, and we're excited about that. Oh well, gosh, I've got to keep up with those uh, those details because that is definitely something I've. I wanted to, I wanted to own myself, but you're right. The, the, the previous iteration was kind of pricey, but anyway. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot going on even with the classic series written house archives is coming out with a whole series of trading cards. We had commissioned Juan Ortiz who did all the work with star Trek. Uh, he's also a huge lost in space fan. Yes. And, uh, so we commissioned 100, um, posters based on the original series and the characters 
and that's going to be uh, a book coming out with Titan Press. It's it's already a line of T-shirts and posters, um, and uh, and as I said, Rittenhouse is going to do a series of of trading cards uh, featuring Juan's work, and uh, we also had Juan do posters for the new ten episodes from Netflix, and uh, they're going to do a uh, well, they've, they've issued a soundtrack album. I think they're going to do a vinyl version. Oh. Uh, we're going to feature Juan's art uh, that, uh, for the Netflix soundtrack. Um, that's coming out on CD in a couple of weeks. It's already downloadable on Amazon.com and um, and through iTunes, I believe. And uh, But we, we've got a lot of um, classic things coming up. So... And we're we're still talking with uh, Fox about issuing Lost in Space on sixteen by nine format as well as the current four by three format. And um, mm. uh, so yeah, there's a lot of and and we're talking about putting Lost in Space Forever, which we've gone in and lovingly re-edited to include all the new transfers uh, and remastered all the stuff with Jonathan and Bill and. John Larroquette and the robot, and uh, so we're we're going to put that out pretty soon. Oh gosh, so many things to look forward to. Is there anything else you want to let us know before we uh, we let you go, sir? Um, other than the fact that I'm the world's happiest ten year old kid, um, <laughs> because I, you know, I feel that this Lost in Space is. In, you know, not again. It's the show that I felt I was watching in 1965. It it is, it it gives me that same thrill of excitement and adventure and discovery that I felt the original show had, and uh, and I'm and I'm so tremendously proud. And I don't think, you know, in, in a weird way, I'm grateful that the other versions failed. Uh, the other times we tried to do it because they would never have been this good. Mm. Um, no one would have spent the money. No one would have put 10 hours guaranteed on the air. Um, it, it worked out for the best. I, I, uh, I thank Sheila and Irwin in heaven. Oh. I think uh, they were looking down and made sure that it worked out this way. Well, you've got to be very proud, and I'm I'm very proud for you, sir. And it's just it's such a pleasure speaking on behalf of myself and my uh, co-host is not with us today. Thank you again for being so generous with your time, joining us on Alpha Control. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. I know it's going to be a treat for our listeners. So we can't thank you enough for all that you've done to make this new Netflix series happen. And and being as I call you to my friends, he's the keeper of all things Irwin Allen. So well, that's, God that's bless very you. Sweet. You know, well, what, at, one, at one point, I'll just leave you with this. At one point, I, you know, through Bill, I got to meet Mark Hamill years ago. And Mark wanted to know if I could get him a copy of all the Batman episodes and Green Hornet episodes on VHS, oh. back in the day of VHS. And I got them for him. And he said, ooh, I don't, I, I can't believe you did that. I, 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 you know, I, I can't, like, how, how did you do it? And I said, Mark, one of us got in. Uh, in other words, I'm a fan, uh, just like everybody else, but but somebody made the mistake of letting me get a job at 20th Century Fox, and I got in. And getting in was, was able to get somebody at Fox who loved the show. 
I'm no better than any other fan. I just got in. Okay. Mm. So with, with that in mind, that's how we come to have this new show. One of us got in. That's all I'll say. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we're committed to reviewing all, all 84 episodes, I'll say, of Lost in Space. I just can't believe no one's done a podcast like this before, but we sure scored big getting you on our show today, sir. And thank you again so much for your time. All right. Well, thank you very much, and I'm, I'm excited. And, uh, and good luck to you. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. That was a great interview with Kevin Burns. Let's keep our fingers crossed that Netflix will be bringing the new Lost in Space back for another season. In the meantime, we'll be back next week with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you then. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.